Hey, and welcome back to Business of Film, episode 18. My name's Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a craftruck.com podcast. This week's episode is with James Shapiro of Drafthouse Films. This is a kick-ass episode. James is awesome, very forthright with information. There's just uh, a lot to learn from this guy, and we hope that you enjoy it. Also, we're thinking of doing a Q&A here at Craft Truck, a live webinar, Q&A style, anything goes. You ask a question, we give you an answer. It could be on producing, filmmaking, financing, distribution. We're just kind of toying with that idea right now. So if it's something that you're interested in, send us a tweet at Craft Truck or send us an email, coffee at crafttruck.com. And if we get enough interest, we will set that up for you. On with the show, episode 18, James Shapiro. James, welcome to the show. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Uh, so before we get started and dive into all the, you know, the awesomeness that is Draft House, can you take a moment and just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get started in the business and how did you, you know, land up working for, for Draft House? Um, well, like any great story, you know, you, you kind of fall into things. Um, I mean, this was plan B for me. Uh, I was uh, at Brandeis getting a graduate degree in Judaic studies, so about a million miles away from this. And, uh, you know, things happened, um, and I ended up uh, managing uh, a Hollywood video in uh, Maryland and uh, quickly got promoted to the corporate office. Um, so that was my first job in the, you know, in the video industry. Uh, I ended up working for Hollywood in the corporate office for about four years. Um, and they were purchased by a company called Movie Gallery. Um, and, you know, Movie Gallery, uh, their concept of what video was, was very different from what my concept was. So... I went looking for a job in Los Angeles doing acquisitions, uh, and I applied to two companies, uh, Anchor Bay Entertainment and uh, Magnolia, and uh, I uh, moved to Los Angeles in 2006 to work for Anchor Bay doing uh, sales planning and acquisitions, uh, and worked for Anchor Bay uh, until uh, 2011. Uh, when I wanted to leave Anchor Bay, um, I had been coming to uh, Alamo Draft House in Austin for uh, South by Southwest and for Fantastic Fest. And uh, I had gotten to know Tim League. And so when I wanted to leave Anchor Bay, I sent Tim an email asking him if he had anything available for me. And it was about the same time that he was um, trying to build Draft House Films into a full-fledged uh, distribution company that would release a, a title a month. And so he brought me on board to uh, run the company. So you actually have a, a, a fairly steep and entrenched history in the, in the distribution business. That's pretty much, you know, your, your, your view of, of the world has been distribution almost since, since day one of coming into the film business. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I think with anything that's Alamo-related, um, you know, I apologize for my dog barking. Um. James, this is a very dog-friendly podcast. We actually had a dog on the show just the other day, so he's in, he's in good company. Oh, good, good. Um, he's a lovely dog. He just likes to let me know if there's somebody outside delivering mail. Uh, so 
you know, Alamo tends to collect people that are movie lovers. So while, you know, my experience and my, my focus has always been in distribution, you know, I'm first and foremost a movie lover. Um, you know, my parents, right from a very early age, got me, you know, excited about movies. And I got to see things like Alien and Road Warrior in the theaters, you know, before I was of age to see those films. And when you see Road Warrior in the theater when you're eight, it changes your perspective on life forever. You know, I, I didn't quite have the same experience, but it was, I think it was Cyborg, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, which I went to see with my dad in theaters, if, if, if you remember that. I mean, for some reason, I just remember that experience. Not quite the same as, as, uh, as Alien, but, but, you know, still, up there. So I appreciate where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, it's... One of the, I mean, like I said, Tim likes to collect these people that, um, you know, are really fanatic about film. Uh, you know, the way I like to think about Alamo is it's a company that was founded uh, and run by a movie lover. Uh, it's managed by movie lovers, and it's for, for movie lovers. So it's a very empowering place to work if you're, you know, a true cinephile. And can you just, just for the listeners that don't know the difference between uh, Draft House, the, you know, Dra- Draft, Draft House Films and, and Alamo, can you just separate those two entities? Because I'm sure we'll be talking about them a lot. Sure. So uh, Alamo Draft House Cinemas uh, is a separate LLC, and they currently own about 20 theaters, you know, across the United States. Their goal is is to have 50 by 2017, which would make them the largest independent theater chain in the United States. Um, Alamo was founded in 1997 uh, when Tim and his wife, Carrie, uh, moved to Austin and opened the first uh, Alamo on Colorado Street in downtown Austin. Um, They had a few months of operating capital. Uh, Carrie's parents took out a second mortgage on their home. Uh, to finance the first theater and it worked Um, and Austin quickly became a place you know which was known as if you're going to make a movie you make it in Los Angeles if you see a movie you see it in Austin Um, so they've expanded now uh, and and Tim being you know the, the lover of cinema that he is along the way he founded a bunch of uh, smaller companies under the Alamo banner. Uh, there's uh, Mondo, which started as you know selling T-shirts uh, under a staircase in the first theater, and is now grown to become um, you know a, a boutique art store, uh, you know a gallery uh, in downtown Austin. Uh, there's Fantastic Fest, which this year will be the. T- Tenth year for Fantastic Fest, uh, and Fantastic Fest is the largest genre film festival in the United States. Uh, there is Rolling Roadshow, which is famous movies in famous places. So they'll take a giant movie screen and they'll show Close Encounters of the Third Kind at Devil's Tower. Uh, they'll show Rocky on the stairs of the Philadelphia Art Museum. Uh, there is. Um, Badass Digest, which is run by uh, Meredith Borders and Devin Faraci. Uh, and that's a web uh, blog uh, that's for lifestyle and movie fans. And uh, naturally, then there's Draft House Films, which is the distribution arm. Uh, and we release uh, 10 to 12 movies a year uh, that are, you know, movies that 
you know, are things that we really fall in love with. So they're not, uh, you know, big budget, mainstream, star powered films. They're little genre or foreign language or documentary movies that we see at film festivals and want to get out to a wider audience. So the uh, motto of the company is these are the movies that we love and we want to share them with as many people as possible. So just where you started the conversation, and because I'm interested to get your take on this, when you first started, you mentioned that uh, the, the company you were working for at the time, Moviola, was it? Uh, they had a very oh. different I- they had a very different I- idea of distribution than you did. What was your idea of what distribution should be? Well, when I worked for Hollywood Video, uh, you know, and there's this sort of concept of blockbuster being very limited in terms of what the breadth of you know the kinds of titles that are in those video stores uh, at Hollywood. We wanted to have a different view. We wanted each store to have somewhere between eight and 15,000 unique titles in the store. Um, there were some stores that we called library stores that had upwards of 120,000 titles in the store. Uh, and it was part of my job to make sure that those stores had more movies uh, on their website than uh, Netflix. Uh, Jesse, I'm going to pause for a second. I'm going to put my dog outside. Sure. Normally I would do the elevator music, but I'm not going to. All right, sorry about that. No nope. um, you, you, okay. you missed me almost doing elevator music, so it's <laughs> it's it's good. Anyways, please continue. My dog's name is John Luke, by the way. I named him after uh, Jean Luc Godard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and my mind went to Jean Luc. Picard, but yes, but, but Godard is is fine too, and it's just I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but uh, I'm a bigger French New Wave. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, uh, please. So, yeah. Yeah, Hollywood, uh, you know, we were committed to you know ensuring that you know anytime a customer went into the store that they would be able to find what they were looking for. You know, we would buy uh, upwards of a hundred to one hundred and fifty new titles every month for. 2,500 locations. So I was really empowered there, uh, you know, being able to have a really wide definition of product um, was something that I liked, you know, being able to buy really obscure, you know, small titles for stores, uh, you know, was something that, you know, I took a great pride in doing. Um, and of course, you know, the, the company selling us the movies loved us because, you know, we were able to buy, you know, 5,000 units of titles that, you know, Blockbuster wouldn't be carrying. You know, and at the time, Netflix, um, you know, really wasn't, uh, you know, a force at that time. Uh, so when Movie Gallery came on board, uh, you know, they started restricting, you know, what our definition of product was. Uh, so while we still had library stores, you know, we were focused a lot more on, you know, uh, you know, like in the 80-20 rule, you you know, twenty uh, percent of our product was doing eighty percent of our revenue. So they wanted to focus on, you know, that twenty percent. Uh, and it's, it wasn't something that I still wanted to be a part of. I gotcha. Okay, so I guess moving now to the 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 draft house, you know, world, 
and what you guys do. I mean, first of all, let's just talk about the what I perceive to be an incredible social media presence of the brand Draft House. Um, do, do you factor the success of what you do to the social media uh, aspect of the brand? Because you guys are, you know, you're you're killing it on Tumblr, you're killing it on Facebook, you know, you're out there on Twitter, and you seem to have a very clear vision of what that brand is and what you do and how you communicate with your audience. So I'm curious to know about. You know your, you know the, the brand of Draft House and how that relates to to, to social because uh, it seems to be impacting the success of your company. Well, thanks for that. Um, I mean, it is a goal of ours. Um, you know, the, the trick with social network, you know, in social messaging is leading in the transactions, and I think you know we're not the only ones, you know, in the process of trying to figure that out. Um, you know, how to take, you know, like an audience that you can build and, and turn that into actual transactions. Um, but, you know, in terms of building the audience, you know, I mean, Alamo has already established themselves, you know, as a nationwide brand. And, I mean, that's part of, you know, I think the goal of the company is, you know, they want to be seen as not just theaters, but they want to associate Alamo with movies or, you know, just the cool side of movies, the same way that Nike has sort of associated itself, you know, beyond shoes, and now you think of Nike, you think of fitness. Um, so the social messaging has always been, you know, to sort of, you know, continue that wave that Alamo has already built. Uh, I don't know if you if you saw all a couple years ago, but. You know, Alamo has this no talking, no texting policy, and they're pretty strict about it. You know, if you text in the movie, they'll warn you once, and if you do it again, they'll throw you out. Uh, and I've actually seen a person get thrown out for texting. Um, a couple awesome. years ago, this drunk woman was thrown out of the theater, and she left a voicemail in our corporate office, which we turned into um, a... Uh, uh, a, a viral YouTube clip, you know, that, that did go viral, you know, and it got millions of people to, to download it. So that was one of the big ways that Alamo got out there in terms of the brand. Um, we're just, you know, we're continuing to take that cool factor, you know, that Alamo does. It's a little bit, you know, pushes the boundaries, a little bit off center, you know, very edgy. Uh, we want to continue that. Uh, you know, with our social me- messaging. So we are constantly on Twitter. You know, we've got the great Tumblr, uh, Birth, Movies, Death. You know, we're, we're focused a lot on Facebook. Uh, and, you know, Tim, you know, is always out there trying to find, you know, and incorporate, you know, new companies and new technology, you know, that can help build the brand. Now, in terms of, like, your, your, your movie selection, it's just, it's not an, only an eclectic mix of films, but... They are all awesome films. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the films, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to interview Brandon Trost, the director of, um, uh, of the FP. Awesome, awesome movie. You know, I'd love to get your story just... And it's only specific... I mean, there are, there are any number of movies I could call upon in your list, but it's only because we happen to have heard, you know, uh, his side of making that movie. I'd love to hear your side of acquiring that movie. Oh, well, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. I, I'm going to be telling uh, things, you know, secondary, because I was actually... They bought that movie 
out of South by in 2011, and I, I started with the company in November of 2011. So I came on board in that movie; it had already been acquired. Um, but you know, being around the trusts, and you know, certainly my boss, and I've heard enough stories about you know how that movie came into being. Uh, you know, as far as Alamo is concerned, um, you know, the trusts had created a short film uh, for FP. You know, which kind of blew Tim away, and he kept following up with the guys. You know, because they had said that they were going to expand it into a feature, uh, and Tim was really interested in programming it for Fantastic Fest. Um, so it wasn't ready for Fantastic Fest, but at the time, Tim was doing programming for South by Southwest. Uh, you know, for the Midnight program, and he would call that uh, South by Fantastic. So FP was. Um, you know, one of the films that he programmed for that. And while he was, you know, evaluating it, he has, you know, this group of people in Austin, you know, that he screens movies with or that he'll share screeners with. And he will send the movie, the screener out in an envelope and you write your feedback on the envelope and then you give it back to Tim. So FP was covered in people who either thought it was the greatest thing that they'd ever seen or it was the worst movie that they'd ever seen. It, you know, was just this envelope just littered with comments that were either, you know, genius or dog poo. Uh, uh, but, you know, Tim sided on the side of genius. And, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, after uh, Four Lions, that was the, the, the next acquisitions for uh, Draft House Films. You know, I'm I'm, I'm going to give away probably something that I shouldn't, but we're never going to do this. Although we would love to do it, uh, is literally to take that movie, you know, get a VHS, an actual like old school VHS and an old school VHS machine, tape the two together, then people can order the VHS, which you pick up for like you know two bucks, uh, and the VHS machine, and ship them out to people so they can watch the movie on their VHS on a VHS player in their homes. We we did that for Miami Connection. Did you? Uh, we did, yeah. Um, and how'd that go? You know, it did well. I mean, we um, you know, we did a very limited run of it, uh, and you know, the the trick with VHS, you know, for us is we want to, you know, we want to sell the VHS in in you know like the old school clamshell type cases, and those are not easy to come by these days. Uh, so we're, we're, we're kind of restricted in what we can do in, in just the ability to, to, to get those cases. Um, but it's, FP makes a lot of sense on VHS as well because it's such an 80s throwback uh, kind of movie. Um, but, uh, you know, we, um, our sister company, Mondo, you know, that I spoke of at the beginning, they have jumped in uh, the VHS pool in a big way uh, because it's part of Alamo's mission statement, part of it actually includes a commitment to VHS uh, along with a commitment to 35mm. Um, there are literally tens of thousands of movies that you know were released on VHS that will never be released on any other format. Um, you know, that VHS was you know, the ability for a lot of low budget, you know, especially genre movies to get made. Uh, and you know, they you know either were enormously successful or not successful at all. Uh, you know, and the ones that weren't successful, all a lot of them are really great movies that just you know need an audience. Um, 
So Alamo is committed to, you know, archiving those VHS tapes and, and supporting really good VHS stores. And there's a number of uh, those types of stores in Austin um, that they work with. Uh, I love video and Vulcan video. Um, so we, yeah. yeah, Mondo has uh, released a number of VHS tapes uh, for, you know, uh, new releases. You know, they've done some Magnolia releases. Uh, and then we have two films that we have out in theaters right now that what we call repertory releases. We've got this 1979 uh, Italian sci-fi horror mashup called The, the Visitor and uh, Abe Ferreira's um, Miss 45. Both of those are going to be released on VHS through Mondo uh, later this year. You know, and just when you thought VHS was dead, you hear about the film lovers like Mondo, like yourself, who are still putting it out there. Is that, that, that's great. Um, yeah. So let me actually just shift gears in here a bit and just I, I, I want to talk about the state of the the state of the union. If I would ask you for your view of the field right now, view of the the distribution business, uh, what would you say is the state of distribution of, of of indie filmmakers being able to distribute their films or get their films distributed uh, and out to an audience now? Um, you know, the word that I like to use is transition. I mean, I, we're in a transition phase right now. Um, we're not entirely sure what we're transitioning to. Um, you know, we know it's it's a movement from packaged goods to digital. Uh, but we're not entirely, you know, monetizing digital, you know, the, you know, the best way. Um, so... There's an enormous amount of freedom now in distribution. You know, Tim likes to call it the Wild Wild West. Um, you know, it, it's you know there, there there's a lot of new distribution companies that are popping up, uh, and then there are sort of established uh, digital you know distribution methods that independent you know filmmakers and independent companies like like Draft House Films are increasing relying on, you know, for the sole means of revenue. When I was at Anchor Bay, and I started at Anchor Bay uh, in uh, 2006, you know, DVD was on the decline, but it still was 80-90% of your revenue on a title. Uh, and that included, you know, theatrical, that included all digital revenue, you know, that included all VOD. So you could take a movie, you know, uh, you know, an independent movie, and you could put tens of thousands of units in a Walmart, you know, another ten to twenty thousand units in a Target, another ten to twenty thousand units in a Best Buy, and you could sell forty or fifty thousand units in the first week. You don't see that anymore. Um, you know, there are still occasionally some independent movies that'll do well you know, at Walmart or, you know, the other big box retailers. But you are increasingly seeing uh, platforms like VOD, you know, platforms like iTunes that are, you know, the prime place to go see independent movies. We produced a movie called The ABCs of Death, uh, which Magnolia put out on home video. And ABCs of Death is an anthology horror film 
where we gave uh, 26 filmmakers uh, a couple thousand dollars and asked them to create a short film that had one death scene in it. Uh, and we took those and then we titled them, uh, you know, based on, you know, letters of the, the alphabet. And that film did about 100,000 transactions in the first week on VOD, which with the ultra VOD price point is, you know, about a million dollars in revenue. So while that title did well on all, you know, revenue fronts, except for theatrical, theatrical, it only did about $20,000, um, but it, it's the majority of revenue on that title is generated on VOD, and that's a, a significant shift from where we were just five years ago. So, just I just want to clarify when you were saying before that obviously you would put out 20, 30, 40,000 units through Blockbuster and Walmart and what have you, and that now obviously today that's not the case. To what degree is that not the case? Is that is that is that number close? Is it is it getting close to zero? I mean, I guess like how? No, it's not close to zero. And I mean, if you look at the total ship on a title on Street Day, you know, our goal, you know, at at, at Anchor Bay was to ship out a hundred thousand units on Street Day on a title. If we were shipping out less than that, then we didn't think the title was worth releasing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I ended up leaving Anchor Bay was because. You know, they're still dependent on that model. And, you know, it became clear to me that the industry, you know, was moving past that model. Um, so it's not zero. Uh, you know, there, Walmart will still sell, you know, significant, you know, DVD and Blu-ray units. Um, you know, Target, Amazon, um, you know, those companies, you know, are still doing well with, you know, DVD to some extent. It, it, the, the best way to look at it it is if DVD started declining in about 2003, 2004, if those were the years of its peak, and you, you think about it on a graph, so you're at the peak of, of your graph in 2004, and you're on a steady decline since then. Around 2011, 2012, you basically hit bottom. But bottom wasn't zero. Bottom was, you know... 20 to 40 percent, maybe 50 percent of what it used to be. And now we're in a plateau phase, you know, for packaged goods. So it's not really declining anymore. You know, there's still an audience out there for, you know, DVD. Um, you know, I mean, Redbox, you know, as a rental has been very, very successful, uh, you know, moving into that spot. You know, and people like to think of Netflix as the company that, you know, took Blockbuster and Hollywood out of business. But in reality, it was more Redbox that did it, uh, you know, with their $1 pricing per day. Um, so Redbox, you know, is uh, generating a ton of revenue, you know, still with DVD and Blu-ray rentals because there still is a market for that. Um, that's only a select group of titles, right? So It is. Well, that's one of the problems. Yeah with Redbox, right, is that they have a kiosk that can only fit, you know, a certain number of discs. So they're going to load that kiosks with, you know, the movies that are going to generate the highest demand. Um, so if you are looking for, you know, smaller independent titles, your selection there is going to be pretty minimal. Like Drafthouse Films, for example, we have yet to get a title in Redbox, um, you know, because the demand for our titles is pretty niche. Uh, 
you know, we don't have stars in our movies. Um, you know, we, we'd like to have a lot of genre movies, but genre movies of quality are very, very expensive to acquire. Um, you know, so we haven't gotten uh, a lot of genre movies. We're about to release really our, our one of our first true genre films. Uh, it hits VOD in, in about two weeks, but it's a movie called Cheap Thrills. Uh, and that's a movie that we have expectations with that, something like that should get, get into Redbox. Uh, but if I'm releasing 10 to 12 titles a year, I'm kind of hoping that I get one, one or two into Redbox a year, you know, because there's, they are so selective because of what their limitations on space is. So in the, in the VOD digital world that we're now transitioning into or into, arguably, uh, how... I want to I want to ask this question delicately, but I, but I'm not. I'm just going to ask. I'm just going to come out and say it, which is, you know, Apple for the most part controls that. They take I, I think 30 percent just off the top, leaving the balance to uh, the distribution company that then you know can return profits to the uh, the producers. How how dangerous is that model where you've got one aggregator that? for the most part, controls... And I don't know what percentage they do control. Maybe you have that, that, that information. But between, you know, the competitors being, I suppose, Hulu and Amazon Prime, you know, it, it's a very entrenched group, and they control, I would have to think, 70 80% of the market. And, well, they're, and their off-the-top percentage is arguably very steep. Um, you, you're talking about a couple different revenue streams. Um, there is a sell-through revenue stream for digital is called EST, and there is a transactional, uh, you know, rental revenue stream uh, that for digital we call uh, uh, VOD. Uh, and there's different types of VOD. There's, you know, I will give you ten dollars, or I'll give you five dollars and I get to watch this movie as many times as I want over 24 hours or I give Netflix ten dollars a month or eight dollars a month and I can watch as many movies you know in that month uh, is what's available on Netflix so Apple is one of the market share leaders um, for EST but on a transactional video on demand, the market share leaders are actually the cable guys. Um, so like the Comcasts of the world. Um, you know, they're, they're the market share leader on, on those. Uh, you know, EST is nowhere near the revenue right now of uh, rental in the digital space. There's a lot of things that the studios are doing to try to push EST. They're giving iTunes early windows now that are just for sell-through. So if a movie like, like um, Gravity, for example, um, you know, is going to be available on DVD in, let's just, I'm just going to say, like, March 15th, they can give iTunes two weeks early to sell it in order to try to push consumers to a higher-priced, higher-margin EST transaction. Um, it doesn't answer what your question was, you know, which I think you're trying to get at is, you know, like how, how, you know, 
you know, like from a filmmaker or a distributor standpoint, what is it like when you have somebody like, in this case, Comcast, who, you know, they are, uh, you know, the market share leader in terms of VOD, you know, that they're in 50% of the households in the United States. Uh, when we released um, ABC's A Death through Magnolia, 80, 90% of the transactions we were doing, you know, through that revenue stream happened through Comcast. Um, and, you know, you were saying iTunes is taking 30%. Well, the cable providers are taking 50%, you know, of the revenue there. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's all negotiable, you know, for a lot of these things. But, you know, unless you have extremely high demand content, you're not going to get favorable splits. Um, you know, if you're a little indie like, you know, Draft House Films is, you, you really just have to accept a 50% split on it. So for every dollar that's earned, you get 50, you know, cents back. And then and from a filmmaker's perspective, I mean, I'm taking my distribution fee, and then I've got to recoup my costs, and I've got to recoup the money that I, you know, spent to get the movie, you know, which we call an advance um, or a minimum guarantee. So at the end of the day, you know, for that one dollar, the filmmaker is getting, you know, uh, you know, we, we've got to recoup all our money first before they're getting a dime of that. Uh, so in terms of your, uh, just specifically Draft House, um, when you're picking up a film, and to I guess to equate to a certain extent the example that you used before where Anchor Bay would say, okay, we have to ship 100,000 units, otherwise the title's not worth picking up you're looking at these films from not only a movie lover perspective but you're also looking at it from an economic perspective so can you just describe to a certain extent your thinking in terms of how you think about you know you you're at a festival you're you're or you're you know you've you've got access to a certain pool of product what are the things that you're looking at that are going to help tip the equation to acquire a film or not acquire the film not from the love of the film side, but from the economic side. Yeah, I mean, well, you got to balance it. I mean, when you're a company like Draft House Films, you know, we want to be a curated, you know, distribution company. You know, meaning that we we want to have a certain level of trust with our fan base that they may not know what the movie is, but they know if it's a Draft House Films release, you know, that it's going to be a film of quality. Um, you you do have to balance the quality of the film with the economic value of the film. So, I mean, we, you know, we, we go to film festivals, you know, and we prepare, you know, our priorities, you know, based on, you know, what we've been tracking, you know, what, what we think we haven't, we're not familiar with and what sounds good. You know, we go and we see the film, the very first question we ask is, you know, is it a good movie? You know, did we love the movie? You know, that's our first threshold. You know, and then it's my job to try to figure out, you know, if you can make money off of it. Um, you know, we you know, you know, by and large, like something like a documentary is, you know, the kinds of films that you know, don't do a, a lot of business. Um, you know, especially foreign language documentaries. But, you know, we, we saw Active Killing at Toronto um, and fell in love with it. Uh, and, I mean, we knew it was going to be a challenge to release, you know, but, 
you know, I built a model, you know, that was predicated on, um, you know, having a significant theatrical release and getting, you know, a certain dollar figure from that and uh, hoping that Netflix would support the film, you know, and putting in a dollar figure that I needed to get out of Netflix. Um, and both of those things happened. So we were able to, you know, release Active Killing the way that we wanted to release it and, you know, do enough business, you know, that we're hitting our margin goals, you know, on a movie like Active Killing. Now, you know, Active Killing on paper looks like an extremely low demand title because of, like I said, it's a documentary and it's a foreign language documentary. And it's a foreign language documentary that asks you to spend two hours with people that killed, you know, hundreds of people with their bare hands. Um, it is not a movie that mainstream America wants to spend Saturday night with. But you fall in love with a movie and you think it's important enough that you want to get it out there. You know, if you can build a model that makes it financially viable, then, and, you know, it, it's possible. So it just comes down to balance. You know, so like I said, on active killing, that was something that we got significant support theatrically with. You know, and we got significant support from Netflix. And in that case, we were able to make that title work. Theatrically, was that put out, obviously, through through the Alamo and or and into broader chains as well? Or? Well, that was, you know, all of our movies play outside of Alamo. Um, we have a number of theaters that we're very close with, you know, that are very supportive of our kinds of films, um, you know, and our kinds of a release strategy so they you know will support our movies in markets that Alamo isn't in um, but in the case of Active Killing for example we wanted to do a very traditional release with that traditional meaning that we weren't going to exploit any other rights during the theatrical window uh, it was just going to be available in theaters and theaters alone well when you do that you open up the ability theatrically to play in a much wider uh, group of theaters. So active killing is not something that like AMC would get excited about or uh, Regal would get excited about. But there's a chain of theaters called Landmark, which is actually owned by the same parent company that Magnolia is owned by. Um, but Landmark right now is the largest independent theater chain in the United States. And they have uh, a good number of theaters in major markets that are high-revenue theaters. So Active Killing was a movie we went to Landmark with right after we acquired it. And we got their support at the beginning, you know, that they would play it, you know, in, in high-revenue theaters in their major markets. And that allowed it to do, you know, we're about at uh, half a million dollars in box office on that title when most of our movies are less than $100,000 in box office. And that is simply because we were able to get Landmark on board as a partner very early on. Um, what is it, given that you want to do a traditional theatrical release with Active Killing, and I guess just extrapolating to your other titles that you have, what is your position on the notion of compressing the windows you know, to be as tight as possible versus giving each window its its due space is each title its own thing or do you have a general you know or, or, or do you fall on one side of the fence or the other right now in terms of you know what the ideal model should be or is right now yeah um you know i mean i think everybody's is, is got the same attitude 
about that, which is, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all distribution strategy. Um, so when we are looking at a movie, there are times that I will build multiple models for that title, uh, you know, so that we can look at different release strategies, you know, if we want to do a traditional release, if we want to do a, a, a movie where we're pushing it in an ultra-VOD window, if we're pushing it in a day-and-date window, um, you know, it, you know it, it does depend on the movie itself. Uh, but by and large, you know, releasing a movie in a traditional theatrical strategy requires more money to do so. Uh, I mean, I can spend, um, you know, I'm, I'm, these aren't the real figures, but let's just say I spend $100,000 to release something um you know, on average, if I'm going to do something like active killing, I'm going to have to spend, you know, three and a half times that, you know, five times that, you know, in order to give that movie enough awareness that it's, you know, going to, um, you know, get people to go see it in the theater. It's also, it requires me to, to, to spend money on print ads. It requires me, you know, to, uh, you know, to spend money on more prints. Um, and while, you know, we're not making 35 millimeter prints anymore, you're still required to play what's called a VPF fee uh, when you play a movie digital in a the theater, which the VPF fee was supposed to, um, you know, pay for the digital transformation. But at this point, you know, most of the major theater chains have already paid for that digital transformation and they don't want to stop charging VPF fees because it's a revenue stream for them. So it, it, it's not as much money as it was to create 35 millimeter prints, but it still is not as cheap as you think it would be to release a movie digitally. So what I'm saying is, you know, if you are going to choose to do a theatrical release with it in traditional, you have to, you know, have a title that is going to make money theatrically. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to make up the difference on home video. Now, can you get that granular in terms of I know if I spend you know a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, uh, or more? Can you equate that to box office? Do you actually have the? I mean, if, if if you know what your movie is, can you? Are your models and your understanding the movie sophisticated enough to say if I spend this much, I'm likely going to get this much? I mean, is there? Is that? I do it the other way around. I, I say in order for this to work. I need to make X dollars at the box office. And in order for me to make X dollars at the box office, I need to spend this much money. And it, it's not quite a one-to-one -one ratio, but it's pretty close. Um, you know, now, meaning do, 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 do you just look at like the – sorry sorry to cut you off, but are you looking at the historical data of other titles or um, – Well, but I don't know yeah. how, how other titles, how much P&A they spent. Um, I mean, I know how much – like when I – you know, we're, we're acquiring a couple films out of Sundance – so if I'm looking at a documentary out of Sundance that uh, is, um, you know, uh, you know, a social um, issues documentary, then I'm going to look at, you know, what's come out in, uh, you know, 2012 and 2013 that are similar social issue documentaries. Uh, and I will look and see what kind of box office that they did. And, you know, I mean, you, you generally err on the side of being conservative but if you feel like you have some really good comps, and they're all around the four to six hundred thousand dollar range, 
then you can safely, you know, say, well, then my goal for this title is going to be to do at least $400,000 box office. And in order to do $400,000 box office, I'm going to have to spend, you know, almost $400,000 in order to get to that number. Right. Um, so I just, because we're, we're wrapping up on time here, just maybe one or two last questions, if, if I may. Um, what approach do you recommend for filmmakers who would want to be in business with Draft House? Or, or is there an approach? Is it just, you know, you go make the movies, we'll, we'll watch them at film festivals, and, and you know, that's the way it works? Or, or is there something else that you might recommend to filmmakers listening to this podcast saying to themselves, hey, Draft House is a cool company. I'd like to be in business with them. Um, well, I mean, if they want to have Draft House distribute their movie directly, you know, and they're in the um, a pre-production phase, you know, I mean, it's important to get in touch with us early, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and state their interest. But I would first and foremost tell filmmakers you know, you don't want to restrict yourself to one distribution company. Um, you know, the most important thing you can do is make a good movie. Um, you know, there's a lot of luck involved, you know, in distribution. You have to get the, the movie into a, a good film festival. Um, you know, in, in order to do that, you have to get, you know, the programmers to like the movie. Uh, and, you know, like is a subjective word, right? Everybody has their own opinion. So you, you can make a great, great movie, but if the three people at Toronto that are deciding whether it's going to play in a specific section, you know, if two of them don't like it, then it's not going to get into that, that film festival. Uh, and that's just because two people don't like it. You know, and, and that's luck. I mean, there's not a lot you can do about that. So you, you can only do the things that you can control and, you know, make a good movie first. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, hopefully it'll get into good, good film festivals and then, you know, buyers will see it and then, and then you can move on from there. But, you know, having said that, I mean, you know, things are changing because of digital. Um, you know, and, and things are changing because of the success of certain, you know, uh, platforms like Netflix. I mean, Netflix is very much, you know, into the... Um, originals game and while the majority of originals that they want to be doing are uh, you know television programs you know they are really ramping up their documentary original section uh, you know so you can go to Netflix now and you know and get them excited about the movie and there's a chance that they may come on board on the front end of the film um, you can go to Magnolia and you know and, and they may get excited about the film on the front end um, you know, it, 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 it's becoming a little, little bit more accessible that way. But also the, the, the great thing about the world that we're entering into you know, is self-distribution. And as a, a guy who manages a distribution company, I really don't want to encourage filmmakers to self-distribute their movie because by and large I don't think it's successful, you know, unless you're like a Tony Hawk or a Shane Carruth, you know, where you have an established brand already, you know, that's going to help awareness. You know, you really need a distribution company for awareness. But let, let's just say that you are a, a, a filmmaker who doesn't want a distribution company to, you know, take their fees, to have to recoup, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing costs. 
you know, they, they want to be able to, to, you know, get the majority of revenue that's being earned on their movie. They can go out and they can release the movie themselves now. You know, there's um, a terrific digital platform called VHX that encourages, you know, self-distribution and provides a mechanism, you know, in a very cheap mechanism for filmmakers to get their movie on the digital platform. Now, by and large, the revenue that you're going to be generating if you just put something up on VHX isn't going to be, you know, significant. But that money is going to be pretty much all yours. Um, you know, so there is some benefits to self-release. And the farther we get into digital distribution, the more accessible you know, and, and easy it will be to self-release movies. So the key in that is still always going to be to try to get you know, a large number of transactions to really make it worthwhile. Uh, you know, the adage, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a noise? Well, if a movie gets released and nobody sees it, did you really release the movie? You know, I mean, does it, I mean, you, you're not making the movie for yourself. You're making the movie for, you know, people to see it. Um, you know, so that's the challenge in self-distribution. I, I could probably ask you a, a thousand more questions, um, but, I, you know, we, we, we've kind of reached the end of our of our time here and I just want to thank you for, for taking the time and being so forthcoming with, with some of the examples that you gave uh, really insightful um, you know amazing company uh, I love the way you guys you know think about film and, and I wish you only the, the most success in what you guys are doing and, and thank you for coming on the show and sharing Jesse thank you I mean it's, it, it was great to talk to you and I, I appreciate the opportunity for you to you know help get the awareness of draft house films to a, a large audience